Okay, we are live. Hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I am excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is Dr. Andrew Loke. He is a professor at Hong Kong Baptist University, and he is as, as well, he is the author of this uh, book right here. I don't know if I can get that in the shot. God and Ultimate Origins. That's what we're going to be discussing today. Uh, it's a great book. It'll be linked in the description below. You should get a copy of that from the Amazon link there. Uh, but Dr. Lope, thanks so much for joining me, sir. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Hidden. Thanks for inviting me on your program. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for taking the time out of your day to do this. I'm sure you've got a busy schedule, uh, being a professor and all. Of course, you're, you're hailing all the way from Singapore, I think you said. Uh, I think that might be the furthest guest that I've had on the show, so congratulations. You've won the longest distance contest there. Uh, but yeah, I really appreciate you doing this. And uh, for those uh, in the audience who may or may not be familiar with who you are, I thought it might be helpful uh, if you give us a brief introduction, kind of who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, my name is Andrew Lok. I'm an associate professor at the Hong Kong Baptist University, and I teach philosophy of religion, science and religion, as well as the history of Christian thought. Um, I did my PhD at King's College London, and I have written a few books um, uh, on uh, philosophy of religion and, and uh, historical uh, studies of early Christianity. So, for example, um, the book uh, origi uh, The Origin of Divine Christology, published by Cambridge University Press, and The Cryptic Model of the Incarnation, which is on how we understand the divine and human attributes of Christ, and also a, a book that is coming out soon uh, called Investigating the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, which looks into the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And of course, this book, which you just mentioned, uh, the book called uh, God and Ultimate Origins, which uh, um, talks about the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God. Yeah, so you're, so you're writing a book on the resurrection. You're really going to span the whole spectrum there. You're going to have one on the argument for God. Uh, you got some theological books in there, and then you're going to have one on the his historicity of the resurrection. That's uh, very uh, impressive. And, and the book is uh, excellent. Again, you should get a copy. It'll be, I'll, give, I'll leave a link in the description so you can get a copy of that. Uh, Dr. Loka, before we get into the book, uh, tell me about kind of how you became a Christian and then also how you became interested in uh, the philosophy of religion. Okay, so um, I, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old. At the time, I was looking for the meaning of life, and I found it in Jesus Christ. And so I became very excited about this and started to share with others about Jesus and how he can give us an abundant life and eternal life. And when I entered into university, I had a classmate who I had lots of conversation with. And so I was telling him about Jesus and he was telling me about atheism. And he was claiming that, uh, you know, we need to, um, no, he, was, he was claiming that science can explain how the universe came about and we don't need to believe in God. And so he, his objections to Christianity actually challenged me to think more rigorously about what I believe. And so um, I began to look for answers to his questions. And I'm very thankful to have found answers in the writings of many apologists and philosophers of religion. So people like uh, Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig, I, I found their writings so helpful. And so that, that is how I began interested right, in uh, philosophy of religion. Uh, and and so I began to do my own research in, into this area. Oh, very cool. That's uh, uh, 
kind of similar to how I became interested as well while I was in seminary, actually. Um, I didn't have a friend or anybody that was objecting to my faith like uh, uh, like you did, but um, um, just kind of had some doubts of my own, and so I kind of fell into it that way. I think that's kind of how a lot of people fall into uh, the, the study of the philosophy of religion. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Now, uh, again, we are here to discuss the book for the third time. I'm going to leave a link in the description. you got to get a copy of this book. It's very good. Um, and uh, thank you to Dr. Logue for writing it. Uh, tell me about how you... Um, got the idea for this book and kind of just how the book uh, God and Ultimate Origins uh, came about. Okay, so after I uh, found the answers to my questions, I began to wonder why is it not the case that other philosophers who are not, who are not Christians, why, why, why don't they buy into this? Why, why don't they also believe in God? So I, I, I sent an email to a philosophy professor at the National University of Singapore uh, and I, I summarized my own thoughts about the cosmological argument and sent it to him by email. And he referred me to another professor uh, in Australia. His name is Graham Opie. He is one of the leading atheist philosophers in the world. Right? Yeah, and I, love, has, uh, I love Graham Opie. He's, a, he's, a, he's an excellent philosopher. I like uh, listening to him speak as well. Yeah, so you know, he, he will give very detailed and rigorous critique right, of the cosmological argument. And so um, I, I got in touch with him, and we had a very thorough email correspondence of about 120 emails. So 60 emails from me and 60 emails from him. Uh, it's it, going through the cosmological arguments step by step uh, in a very rigorous manner. And so for me, it's like you know, taking a PhD under him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and so you know, he, he was raising all kinds of objections right, to the cosmological argument. And I, I tried to think of responses to his objections. And so uh, after the whole 120 email discussion, I realized that, wow, the cosmological argument is still defensible you know, in spite of the detailed critic. Right? And, and so um, I, I decided to uh, do further work in this area. And eventually, you know, this becomes the book. That that's that's pretty cool that uh, it, it kind of came about through an email exchange uh, yeah. there with uh, Dr. Oppie. Um, so let's talk about methodology a little bit. Uh, like you were just saying a second ago, you had this friend who is claiming that uh, science can explain everything, and perhaps there's uh, those uh, skeptics mm -hmm. out there who would say that science is the only uh, the only tool that we should be using to ask these sorts of questions. Um, so what tools do we have at our disposal well, whenever we're in in investigating this question of uh, the origins of the universe or ultimate origins? Well, I think science is definitely one of the ways to find out the truth, right? but it is not the only way. Uh, philosophy is another way right, to discover the truth. In fact, science itself requires philosophy, and I think we can use both together right, to help us discover the truth. Um, so. Um, for example, we, we have good scientific evidence to indicate that our universe has an ultimate origins. Right? So um, other than the Big Bang Theory, we have the general generalized second law of thermodynamics, which indicate which also apply to quantum systems as well. And so indi which indicate that um, uh, even uh, so prior to the Big Bang, many scientists think that you know, it's a quantum era. But the, second, the, the generalized second law of thermodynamics uh, uh, which has been uh, used by uh, physicist Aaron Wall uh, at Cambridge University. You know, he, he would use that to argue that e even that era, that quantum era, must also have an ultimate beginning as well. Uh, and, and so this is one scientific uh, evidence right, for the 
uh, ultimate origins. And in addition, in addition to that, we have at least four philosophical arguments to show that the universe has an ultimate origins. And this uh, includes uh, the argument for the impossibility of concrete infinities. That's the first argument. Then the second argument is uh, the argument for the impossibility of traversing an actual argument I propose in the book uh, is called, uh, well, you might call it the argument for the viciousness of dependence regress. Um, and I'll, I'll explain this uh, later on. And then there are the fourth argument uh, are all kinds of paradoxes, uh, which shows the absurdity of an infinite regress. So, for example, um, the Grim Reaper paradox, which has been proposed by uh, a, a philosopher Alexander Proust at Baylor University. So, so, so there are there are multiple arguments right, to show that the universe has an ultimate origins, scientific arguments and philosophical arguments, and any one of these right, will be enough to establish the conclusion that the universe has an ultimate uh, origin. So we don't need to defend all of them actually. No, in fact, um, any one of them will be enough right, to prove the conclusion. Such that so that even even if one of so even if one of these arguments fail, uh, but the others succeed, right, the conclusion will still be established. Right. So in order for the atheist right, to rebut the conclusion, he will have to rebut all four, uh, all four of these arguments as well as, as a scientific argument as well. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and so it's not enough for the atheist to just rebut one of these arguments. He has to rebut all four of them. Yeah. Um, and so I think the case is pretty strong, actually. And yeah, so let me say a bit more about the relationship between science and philosophy, because I, sure. I think this is important. Uh, yeah. Because a lot of people have um, misunderstanding, right? A lot of people think that... Um, Science is the only way to discover the truth. Um, but as I said earlier on, um, science itself requires philosophical reasoning, right? So let me explain. Um, so, so what is science, right? So a lot of people think that, well, science consists of experimentation, right? And, and observation, right? It's a systematic study of the world using observation and experimentation. And a lot of people think that, well, in order to prove anything, you need to test your theory, right, using experiments, right? The, the, the theory has to be testable, at, at least in principle, right? Um, however, if we ask the question, right, um, why, why is uh, testability an indication of truth? Right? Right. Why, why is experimentation an indication of truth, right? How is it that experiment help us to find out the truth? Now, you cannot answer this question by doing more experiments, right? You cannot do more experiments to show the value of, of you, you cannot do more experiments to show the value of, of experiments. Right? Rather, you have to explain, right? You have to explain why uh, is it the case that experiments help you to find out the truth, right? And you have to talk about what is truth, what is evidence, and how does evidence lead us to the truth? You, know, you have to talk about prediction, which is used in science, and prediction requires philosophical reasoning like uh, induction and deduction, as well as laws of logic. Right. So the justification for these kinds of reasoning is is not uh, it, it's, it's not based on science, but it's based on philosophy. Right. It's, so science requires philosophical reasoning in that sense. Right. You need to explain why is it that deduction help you help you helps you to arrive at the truth. You need to explain why is it that laws of logic corresponds with truth, for example. Uh, and so all these are required for the foundation of science, and all these uh, cannot be proven by experiments. Rather, you know, they, they, their justification is based on philosophical reasoning. And, and so uh, let me quote uh, from a very well-known scientist. Uh, his name is uh, George Ellis. He's uh, one of the leading cosmologists in the world today. And so he, he notes that, um, so he, he asks the question, what are, what are the criteria for a good scientific theory, right? So a good scientific theory should be internally consistent, planetary power, 
right? Uh, it should be as simple as possible, Occam's razor. Now, these criteria are philosophical in nature, in, in that they themselves cannot be proven to be correct by any experiment. Rather, their choice is based on past experience combined with philosophical reflection. And so this indicates that philosophical considerations are important for science. Right? And so in view of this conclusion, cosmologists and scientists should not ignore the philosophical problems associated with certain models of the universe, such as problems concerning an infinite regress. Right? And in, in fact, uh, scientists who are well informed about the importance of philosophy have used philosophical arguments against an infinite regress to argue against cosmological arguments that postulate an infinite past. Uh, and uh, George Ellis himself is one good example. He has used philosophical arguments as well, even though he's a scientist, but he also used philosophical arguments to show that the universe has an ultimate origins. And so this shows that philosophical arguments are relevant for modern cosmology. And philosophical arguments are what I developed in my book right. to, to prove yeah. that the universe has yeah. ultimate origins, ultimate beginning. And the four arguments that he mentioned, the four philosophical arguments uh, that Dr. Loke mentioned, are uh, spelled out more, in, obviously, in m much more detail in the book. And uh, we're not just going to gloss over them right here either. In just a, a in just a minute, we're going to go over one of those. Uh, but before we get to that question, I, I want to ask you. So uh, there's a number of different uh, styles or different arguments, uh, different cosmological arguments. So you have the the Thomist cosmological argument. You have the Leibnizian cosmological argument. You have the Kalam cosmological argument, which uh, the modern person is probably going to be more familiar with. Um, at least anybody watching this will probably be more familiar with due to William Lane Craig, of course. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the subtitle of your book is called A Novel Cosmological Argument. And so I'm wondering what the difference between the Thomas, the Leibnizian, the Kalam, and your own cosmological argument actually is. What, what makes your argument novel, I suppose? Okay, so um, let me explain first the distinctions between the different types of cosmological arguments. Right, so the Leibnizian version of the cosmological argument basically uh, tries to show that there's a necessary being, right? And so it is based on the distinction between contingency and necessity, right? So uh, contingency being that some things could have been the case or could not have been the case, whereas a necessary being is something that uh, is, is it must be the case, right? So uh, Leibniz tried to argue that you know, there must be a necessary being, uh, something that necessarily exists, and this being is God. Uh, whereas the, the, the Thomas uh, cosmological argument tries to show that there is a first sustaining cause of the universe. So what makes it the case that the universe continues, what, what, so what makes it the case that the universe continues to exist moment by moment? Right? So uh, Aquinas argues that there is a, a first cause that sustains the universe, that keeps the universe in existence. And so that in a nutshell is what uh, Aquinas was trying to uh, argue for. And the Kalam argument is different from the first two. Right? So the Kalam argument tries to show that uh, there is an ultimate beginning right, uh, to the universe and that there's a first cause of time. Right? There's, a, there's a first cause that brought the universe into existence, that brought time into existence. And so that is uh, what is unique about the Kalam argument. So the, so the Kalam argument concerns the beginning of existence. And this idea of beginning, right, is somewhat absent in the first two arguments. Yeah. And um, before we go, before we go on to your argument, I, want, I did want to jump in right there. Do you think that these three arguments uh, succeed? Uh, well, um, I, I'm still 
thinking about the Leibnizian and the Thomist argument, I haven't come to a firm conclusion yet. But okay. I think the Kalam is, uh, in my own opinion, I think the Kalam is the strongest version actually. And, okay. uh, and, the, and the reason being because, and the reason is because you know, we have s s uh, s so many arguments, scientific and philosophical, right, to demonstrates the premise that the universe has an ultimate origins. As I said, you know, there are at least at least four good arguments to show that, and we have good scientific evidence to show, show that conclusion as well. Uh, and, and so I, I think the, the, the premises um, are very strong um, for the Kalam, and that's the first reason. Um, and the second reason is that the Kalam succeeds in demonstrating that the first cause must have libertarian freedom. It, it must be able to bring about the universe freely. And, and, and this idea of libertarian freedom is characteristics of agents, of personal agents. And so the Kalam not only demonstrates that there is a first cause, but demonstrates that this first cause is a kind of agent, a personal agent, and you know, which, which is most closely associated uh, with the, the attributes of God being a, a personal being. Right? Whereas the other uh, cosmological arguments are pretty vague on this. Uh, so, so for example, um, the, the Latinian version shows that there's a necessary being, but why think that this necessary being is God? Right? Why think that he is a personal God? And so on, on this point, the, the Leibnizian version will require help from other arguments. And so uh, someone might try to combine the Leibnizian with the teleological argument to show that, well, the the, God, the the necessary being will be some kind of designer, for example. And so the Leibnizian argument will require other kinds of arguments that complement it right, in order to show that the necessary being is God. In, that, that's in my own view. Uh, yeah. But the Kalam argument is able to stand on its own and demonstrates that you know, the, the first cause is a, is a necessary being, is a, is a creator, right? Yeah. Um, and that, of course, resonates with what the Bible says, right? that uh, since the creation of the world, God's eternal attributes has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, right? so that men are without excuse, right? so people can know that there is a creator of the universe. And that is exactly what the Kalam argument demonstrates. Okay. So, uh, thank you for clarifying that. I hate to jump in like that, but uh, now go ahead and explain uh, how your view differs uh, from those three different cosmological arguments. Well, so actually, my argument is uh, essential, actually, um, but it is quite different from how the Kalam has been traditionally defended. Um, in, in a sense that I add on one more argument that has some roots in the Thomist tradition, so that is what is unique. Um, so, so let me explain, uh, let me elaborate. So traditionally, um, defenders of the Kalam, such as William and Craig, they have tried to defend the second premise, the universe has a beginning, uh, using uh, philosophical arguments such as the arguments for the impossibility of actual infinite, and also the arguments for the impossibility of traversing an actual infinite, right? The first two arguments which I mentioned earlier on, right? So that is how the Kalam has traditionally been defended. And these two arguments uh, um, involves notions concerning infinities, right? So one has to try to prove that uh, concrete uh, actual infinite is impossible or that it's impossible to transverse an actual infinite, right? Either, either one of them. Uh, whereas my the, 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 whereas my argument um, doesn't require all these complicated discussions about infinities. Uh, it is based on the notion of dependence, right? And so, such that even if right, uh, a concrete actual infinite is possible, and even if it's possible to transfer it, transfer it, nevertheless, there must still be a first cause, right? Uh, because um, an infinite causal regress is a vicious causal regress, so there must still be a first cause. Uh, and, and this idea of um, 
the viciousness of the infinite regress uh, is actually uh, taken from the Thomistic philosophers who have argued for a kind of dependence uh, for a first sustaining uh, that that requires a first sustaining cause, right? So they have used the uh, the requirement for dependence to argue for a first sustaining cause, whereas I use this notion of dependence to argue for a first cause of time, and so this is the unique contribution of my book uh, and. Um, uh, yeah, but but let me but before that, let me uh, also clarify. In, in my book, I, I still show that the first two ways are defensible, actually. Right? right. So just now I mentioned that the argument for the impossibility of concrete infinities and the argument for impossibility of transversing actually infinite, right? So I, I think that the first two arguments are still defensible and they are still good arguments. But I add on a third one right, to these two, yeah. and others have add on others as well as mentioned, right? The Grim Reaper paradox, etc. Right? right. And so okay. uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Uh, go ahead and take us through the argument then uh, as briefly as possible, just kind of what the argument actually is. How would you uh, state the argument? Okay, um, so to make things simple for the, everybody listening to this uh, interview, uh, let, let me start by using an analogy, right? Uh, so suppose I have no money, and the only way for me to begin to have money is to get it from you, Aiden, right? Now suppose that luck. you... I don't have any... Yeah. I hope you are not too poor at this moment. <laughs> right. Now suppose that you also have no money and the, the only way that you can get it, right, is to get it from William and Craig, for example. Right. So now suppose William and Craig is also in a similar situation, right? That he has no money and he needs to get it from someone else who also has no money but who who need who also needs to get it from some some from someone else in order to begin to have money. Now if everybody is in this kind of situation, then no one will ever begin to have money. Right, because all of us are kind of in debt, right? If everybody is in debt, right? One debtor borrowing from the other debtor who also borrowing from the other debtors, and nobody has any money to start off with, nobody can begin to exist, nobody can begin to have money in the first place, then no one will ever start to have money, right? Uh, so a series of debtors, right, can never solve the problem of debt. And what is required right, is a, 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 the first guy who, who either has money himself or who can create money, right? Uh, in order to solve the problem, right? So we need to, to have a source, right? The first source, right? In order to solve this problem. So likewise, um, before I begin to exist, I have no existence. I do not exist, right? And in order for me to begin to exist, uh, my parents have to brought me into existence, right? But before they begin to exist, uh, they also require their parents to bring them into existence, right? So if everything along the causal chain is in a similar situation, then no one will ever begin to exist. So it's just like no one will ever begin to have money, right? Um, so what is required is a first cause, right? Uh, something that always existed and which does not require other things to bring it into existence and which has the capacity to bring other things in, into existence. So only such a first cause can uh, answer the question, why did anything begin to exist? In the first place, right? And so this is uh, very briefly and uh, the argument for demonstrating why there must be a beginningless first cause, right, to bring other things into existence. Mm -hmm. So uh, could the universe have just always existed and then just not have needed any cause at all? Maybe the universe itself is just this thing that gives existence to all other things. It's 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 the first source of existence. Yes, this is a great question. And so in order to answer this question, we must think a bit more about what kind of properties 
this first cause must have, right? So just now I, I mentioned that this first cause must be without beginning, right? And moreover, this first cause must also be initially changeless. Now, why is that the case? Well, the reason why is because uh, change, right? When we talk about change, change is something that has a beginning, right? So, um, for example, um, I have changed uh, from um, one, uh, one year old to now I'm 45 years old. So I've, I've changed and what, what, what change means is something gaining or losing a property, right? So I have gained the property of being older, right? I have lost the property of being younger. So change is the gaining of losing of properties and this gaining or losing involves a beginning, right? So I began, uh, I, I began to change. I have began to get older, right? So change is something that has a beginning, right? And there cannot be an infinite regress of change, right? Because as I explained earlier on, right? Um, that's, you know, so for, for me to begin to exist, I need my parents to bring me in, into existence, right? So there cannot be an infinite regress of changes. Uh, and, and so what this means is that there must be a first change, a first event, right? Given the impossibility of an infinite regress of change, there must be a first change, right? Since the infinite regress of change is not possible, there must be a first change. Now, the first change cannot be uncaused, right? Because everything that begins to exist requires a cause. And so this is where we get to the defense of the causal principle, right? Um, uh, which William Lane Craig puts it as, as premise number one, right? In the traditional Kalam version, right? So in, in my defense, I, I put it uh, further down, right? So um, I, I, I show that uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And I defended this in chapter five of my book, where I offer a modus tollens argument to show that uh, if something can begin, if, if something began to exist uncaused, then other kinds of things would also begin to exist uncaused. But it is not the case that other kinds of things begin to exist uncaused. And therefore, it is not the case that something begin to exist uncaused. Right? So this is a modus tollens argument. Right? It denies the consequence. Right? If P, then Q. Right? Not Q, therefore not P. Right? So this argument shows that no, it is not the case that something can, uh, it is not the case that something began to exist uncaused. And so what this means is that whatever begins to exist would have a cause. Right? And so this, um, and so uh, this conclusion shows that the first event must have a cause, right? And so the, the first change must be caused by something. And that something cannot be another change, right? Because, right. Um, yeah, and so that first, th that thing must be initially changeless, right? It must be changeless initially. And then it bring, as, it, as, it, as it brings about the first event, it also underwent a change, right? It also changed as it, as it brought about the first event. And so, and then we need to ask the next question. So how can something which is initially changeless begin to change? How, how does something that is initially changeless uh, cause the beginning of change, right? Now, in order for something that is initially changeless to bring about a, a change, that first cause must have uh, two capacities, right? The first is the capacity to begin the first event, to begin the first change in a way that is not determined by prior events, right? And by the way, uh, I should clarify, by events, I mean a change, right? Right. So by event, I mean a change, right? So the first cause must have the capacity to begin the first events in a way that is not determined by prior events, right? Because the first cause is the first, right? So it cannot be determined by something before it, right? And secondly, the first cause must also have the capacity 
to prevent itself from changing initially. For otherwise, the first cause would not have been initially changeless, right? And and the, and so uh, and the reason is because you know, the first cause and the first event they are not uh, they are not co-eternal, right? They are not together. They are not always together, right? Why? Because the first event has a beginning, whereas the first cause has no beginning. So the first cause, right? Rather, the first cause was without the first events initially, and then brought about the first events, right? Right. So in order for that to happen, right, the first cause must have those two capacities which I described, right? The capacity to initiate the first events, and also the capacity to prevent itself from initiating the first events, right? Mm. And so this capacity to be able to you know, freely bring about the first events in a way that's not determined by prior events, and also to be able to freely prevent itself from changing. I mean, this, this, these two capacities right, describes what philosophers call libertarian freedom. Right. That it can, it can bring about the first event by itself and also refrain from doing that, right? also prevent itself from doing that. And so this uh, characterizes libertarian freedom, and therefore the first cause must have libertarian freedom. And so, um, and so, in answer to your, and so now, so we have demonstrated that the first cause must be initially changeless, um, and the first cause must be uh, must have libertarian freedom, and we, and these two uh, capacities characterize a, a creator, right? And so the and, and therefore the first cause cannot be uh, the material universe. Why? Because the material universe is in constant change, right? Based on our understanding of material, right? So, so when I say it, uh, when I refer to materiality, I'm referring to matter as as we know it you know, by science, right? And science tells us that matter is constantly changing. Right? That is in accordance with quantum physics. Um, so, for example, the universe is a fluctuating quantum field according to quantum field theory. And um, the, the quantum vacuum is in a constant change. You know, the, the quantum particles fluctuate in and out of existence in accordance with Heisenberg equations. So science tells us that our universe is in a state of constant change. You know, it was never initially changeless. And moreover, the universe doesn't have free will. I mean, the, the universe doesn't have libertarian freedom, right? The universe couldn't choose to do anything, right? It, it just followed the natural laws, right? right. And right. and so the universe cannot be the first cause. Rather, the first cause must be some kind of creator, a, a kind of transcendent creator, a creator that that's, that is initially changeless, which means that you no, know, it is also initially timeless in a way, right? If you understand according to the relational view of time, right? That uh, um, time is is a series of change, right? So we have a first cause that is that transcends time and has freedom right, to bring about the universe and is immaterial, right? Uh, an immaterial being with uh, free will and is transcendent. And so that is uh, that characterizes a creator god. And so the first cause must be a god rather than the universe. <laughs> Very good. Uh, so returning back to this, uh, whether or not uh, time could just go back in the past infinitely or not a past eternal universe um you sometimes hear and i and i think that uh, perhaps uh, dr graham oppie uh, responded to you in a similar way in your email exchange uh, but i also heard uh, uh, dr alex malpass uh, say something similar to uh, dr william lane craig recently in a conversation that they had which is when it comes to the past being actually infinite it seems mm -hmm. that the skeptic can say, yeah, that uh, there may be absurdities that follow from that, like Hilbert's Hotel or the Grim Reaper Paradox or things like that. Uh, but so what? Uh, 
things can be absurd, that doesn't mean they're logically contradictory. Um, and so, how do you how do you show that a past infinite universe or the past eternal time is not just absurd, um, like Hilbert's Hotels demonstrates, but how do you actually show that it violates metaphysical necessity, as you mentioned in your book? All right. Now, before I show that, before I uh, demonstrate that and answer the question, let I, I, first first of all let me start by qualifying by by clarifying that. Sure. The Kalam cosmological argument does not depend on the Hubert Hotel argument. Right? Mm -hmm. So a lot, a lot of people have this misunderstanding. A lot of people think that if you can repeat, the, if you can rebut the Hubert Hotel argument, you have rebutted the Kalam. Now that is false, because as I said earlier on, there are at least four philosophical arguments as, as well as scientific arguments, right, which shows that the universe has an ultimate beginning. So even if the atheists can refute the Kalam argument, uh, the, even if the, the atheists can refute the Hubert Hotel argument. That doesn't mean that the column is refuted. No, right? Because the other arguments can still go through, right? Uh, so, 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 uh, including the argument which I presented earlier on, right? When I used the no money analogy, right, to talk about the defendant's request, right? Right. So, 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 so that argument uh, is not dependent on the Hubert Hotel arguments, right? Uh, that is an independent argument, and so this is a qualifier, right? Um, so the column argument does not depend on the Hubert Hotel argument. Nevertheless, I think that the Hubert Hotel argument is defensible. And I think the objections used by OP and others can be answered. And so this is how I answer them. Right? I, I, in my book, chap in chapter two of my book, I demonstrate that um, the Hubert Hotel argument uh, not only illustrates an absurdity, but it also demonstrates the metaphysical impossibility of concrete infinities. So let me um, explain this by uh, using a diagram. So let me share my screen with you. See if we can get this to work. We got it to work uh, in our preparation, so we'll see if we can get it to work here while we're live. Yep. Can you see my screen? Uh, it should pop up on my screen here, and I should be able to click it. Okay, uh, your screen should be showing. Yep. Do you see the PowerPoint slide now? Yes, it should be good to go. Okay, good. So in my book, I uh, use another analogy. Right? So instead of calling this a Hubert Hotel, I call this the Christmas present. Uh, uh, scenario. Okay. Now, so let's suppose that um, there is a robot generator which has been generating robots as long as time existed, right? And suppose there has been a, a Christmas present generator which has been generating Christmas presents as long as time existed. And suppose time is infinite in the past, right? Suppose time has no beginning. Suppose that there has been an infinite. Um, number of events in the past. Now, by the way, this is a reductio at absolute arguments, right? Which means that we, we assume, right, the, the, the opposite, right, to show that the, the opposite conclusion is absurd, right, and which violate metaphysical necessity, right? So I, I'm going to say that, you know, if, you, if, if the past is infinite, right, something that violate metaphysical necessity will happen, right? But that cannot happen, and therefore the past is not infinite, right? Okay, so, so let's suppose that the past is infinite. What will happen then? But what happened is that, well, we will have an infinite number of presents, of Christmas presents, and an infinite number of robots being generated, right? So if you, you can see on this PowerPoint, right, um, that at t negative one, right, there is one uh, Christmas present generated, t negative two, there is one Christmas present generated, right? So the x is a Christmas present, right? So t negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, right? So this is in the past, right? Suppose now it's t zero, 
T negative one, negative two, negative three, negative four, etc. Right. So if the path is infinite, you will have an infinite number of presence. Right. And you will also have an infinite number of robots. Right. Negative one, negative two, negative three, etc. Right. Now suppose each robot just grab one presence. Right. Now would that be left over? Right. Uh, if each robot just grab one present and there is no robot who has no presence, right? Now, no. so the the presence or absence of leftover should be independent of where the robot grab the present from, right? So if the if robot one choose to grab the present produced at negative t negative one, robot negative two, uh, the robot produced at t negative two grab the present uh, produced at t negative two. If everyone just grab the present in front of him, for example, right? And then walk away, right? There'll be nothing left, right? Um, so, uh, and the robot can choose to grab whichever present he wants, right? Because there's, there's all these presents are the same, right? So it, it wouldn't matter whether there's left, uh, it wouldn't matter which, which presents the robot grabbed from, right? I mean, it wouldn't, uh, and uh, as long as everyone grabbed one present, there should be no leftover. Why? Because each robot grabbing one present produced at one duration rather than the other duration has no causal power with respect to the presence of leftover presence. Right? I mean, by grabbing one presence instead of the other presence, the robot is not producing more presence, right? I mean, it's not making right. more presence. Yeah. So, so this is a metaphysically necessary truth, right? So what this shows is that the causal powers of a set of things ultimately depends on the members in the set. Right? Uh, the causal powers of a set of things ultimately depend on the members in the set. Okay, so let me illustrate using another example. Right. Suppose you have no money right, and you dream that you have money. Right? Now, dreaming about money by itself has zero causal power with respect to producing money in your pocket instantly. Right? I mean, you can dream that. <laughs> yes. Right? You can dream that you have $10,000 in your pocket, but you can check your pocket, no, there'll be nothing there. Right? So, dreaming money. Dreaming about money has no causal power with respect to producing money in your pocket. Uh, so in that, in this case, whether there's uh, one person dreaming or twenty person dreaming or infinite number of twenty or ten person dreaming will not make a difference, right? Because uh, will not make a difference whether there's money. You can ask me to dream for you. You can ask your, your wife to dream, and all of us, three of us, can dream together. Uh, but there will still be no money in your pocket, right? Us dreaming, right? So even if an infinite number of people dreaming won't make a difference, right? Even an infinite number of people dreaming won't produce any money in your pocket. Why? Because infinity multiplied by zero is still zero, right? Yeah. Even that each one has no causal power, right? So anything multiplied by an empty set is an empty set. So what this shows is that the causal powers of a set ultimately depends on the members of the set, right? If the members have no causal power, then no matter how many members there are, there will still be no causal power, right? So likewise, in the case of the Christmas present scenario, right, each person grabbing one present from one position rather than the other uh, 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 position, right, each person, each robot grabbing one present from uh, rather than the other present, has no causal power with respect to producing leftover. Right, I already demonstrated that in the previous slide, and so what this means is that even if there's an infinite number of robots, right. You know, they grabbing one present from one position from or rather than the other would still not make a difference with regards to leftover because infinity multiplied by zero is still infinity. Okay, so so this illustrates the the premise which uh, I'm trying to establish, right? Which is that even an infinite number of things wouldn't make a difference right, with regards to um, 
uh, whether there's leftover presence or not. Um, so this is a metaphysically necessary truth. Now, however, we can now show that if there is an infinite past, then this metaphysically tr necessary truth will be violated. Right? So look at this diagram. Right? Suppose robot produced at uh, time n wrap the presence that is produced at time n. Right? So as I said earlier on, right? Uh, the robot produced at t minus 1, grab the present produced at t minus 1, robot produced at t minus 2, grab the present from t minus 2, and each one just grab the present and walk away. Now, how many presents will be left over? Zero. Zero, right? This is very clear. Now, however, if the robots produced at time n grab the present at time uh, 2n, right? So the robots produced at t negative 1 grab the present produced at t negative 2, the robots produced at t negative 2 grab the present produced at t negative 4, uh, so one negative one take from negative two, negative two take from negative four, and negative three take from ne negative six, etc. Right. So if they took it, take it that way, and they walk away, how many presents will be left? An infinite number. Yes, an infinite number. Right. You will have the present. Uh, so the the, the presents highlight in yellow. Right. They will be left over. Right. Negative one, three, five, etc. Right. The odd, all the odd number. Right. So so those will be left over. So you will have an infinite number of presents left over. So what this shows is that whether there are leftovers or not, right, depends on where you grab the presence from. And that violates the, the necessary truth which I've established earlier, right? And in fact, you will, in effect, if you grab the presence in one way or the other, you can have an infinite number of leftover presence and you can use those presence uh, to do other things. You can, you can come back and grab again, right? So uh, you can you know, come back the second time and grab more presence and you can come back the third time and grab more presence and you can use those presence to, to build tables, houses, ships, out of nothing. It's like um, having no money in your pocket and you can have an infinite number of amount of money in your pocket, right? Just by grabbing the presence in a certain way, right? In the right, in the right way. And so this, so this is not just an absurdity, right? This illustrates the violation of metaphysically necessary so this demonstrates that concrete infinities are impossible, right? So to summarize my arguments, my argument can be understand. My argument can, my argument can be understood as a kind of proof by contradiction, right? Right. So if a concrete infinite exists, then principle P, principle P being that each robot grabbing a present from one position rather than another position will not make a difference as to whether there are leftovers. This principle is both true and not true, right? We can show that it is true because as I said earlier on, infinity multiplied by zero is still zero, right? It will make a difference. On the other hand, I just show that it, it, it can be violated. No, it's not true, right? That in fact, if you grab from one position rather than the other, it will make a difference concerning whether there's leftovers or not. Right? So we can show that if an infinite, uh, concrete infinite exists, then this principle is both true and not true, right? So it's a contradiction. And premise two, anything, that's, that anything that entails a contradiction cannot exist, right? And therefore, a concrete infinite cannot exist. Right. So this is a proof. Yeah, very good. Let's see if we can get you okay, back so on the screen here. The <laughs> okay, sure. uh, there you go, I got you there. And then I'll put me up here. Well, maybe. There we go, we're back on. Okay, so uh, that explains why it's not just uh, uh, something that's absurd, but it's actually a, a contradiction or uh, metaphysically impossible. Now, Aquinas, of course, seemed to believe that it was not metaphysically impossible, the, the, the past being infinite, of course, he kind of famously or infamously uh, 
uh, said that it was actually possible, and I think it had to do with the distinction you were making earlier about dependency. Uh, his cosmological argument is much uh, is very much uh, dependent on the principle of dependency. Um, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and so I think he would say uh, the reason that it's possible is because uh, so just to use the example that you were kind of giving earlier. Your parents brought you into existence, and uh, you know if you were if you had or if you have, sorry, I, d I don't know. Uh, if you had children, then you would be bringing them into existence, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, the reason that this uh, is could possibly go back into the past infinitely is because once your parents brought you into existence, you're no longer dependent on them to bring your children into existence. I think that's what Aquinas would say. So, why does his argument fail? Uh, yeah, why does his argument fail? Yeah, so uh, basically he's assuming that uh, once somebody existed, right, that person can bring another person into existence. And, and so, for example, right, my parents brought me into existence. I brought my daughters into existence. And Aquinas will argue that um, the existence of my daughters are not dependent on my parents. Right? So they are not dependent on their grandparents. Uh, because uh, their existence is dependent on, on me, right? I brought them, me and my wife brought them to existence. And so they are no longer dependent on their grandparents. And so Aquinas think that, uh, Aquinas thought, thought that, you know, this is uh, a kind of, uh, ex you know, it is a kind of accidental ordered series, what what he called, right? right? And, and so, um, and, and and therefore he thinks that the, the dependence argument cannot work that way, right? To demonstrate that there must be an ultimate, uh, the independent first cause. However, in my book, I argue that uh, yes, even though um, my, even though the existence of my daughters is not directly dependent on my parents, even though they are not directly dependent on their grandparents, nevertheless they are still indirectly dependent. Right? Indirectly dependent in the sense that if my parents have not brought me into existence, my daughters will not exist. Right. So yeah, so there is still a kind of indirect dependence. And likewise, if you talk about it uh, from a scientific point of view, right? Um, when you think about the Big Bang, for example, so scientists would argue that um, the formation of water on planet Earth, for example, right, this is dependent on conditions very much earlier on, right, uh, at the near the beginning of Big Bang, right, where uh, hydrogen is formed, right. So, uh, so uh, after the Big Bang happened, right, um, eventually hydrogen was formed, right. And many scientists will argue that you know, that requires fine tuning, right? But that's another point, right? But in any, in any case, right, the universe is so so fine tuned in a way that hydrogen is formed, and that later result in the formation of water, right? So if hydrogen, if there were no hydrogen formed near the beginning of Big Bang, right, there will be no water formed on planet Earth, right? Right. So the condition on Earth is dependent on events that happen way, way earlier on. Yeah, right? yeah, I see what you're saying. It's very interesting that um, it, and Aquinas was such a good thinker that I struggle to think that uh, he wouldn't have seen that objection. Uh, that you yeah. know, um, so I'd have to look into it further myself. I, I very much like Aquinas, and so I, I assume that uh, he would have a rebuttal that too. I don't know what it would be, um, but anyway, I, I think that. And actually, there, there, uh, there is a second mistake that Aquinas made, actually. Okay, yeah, go ahead. 
So, uh, I mean, you mentioned that Aquinas is a great thinker. Um, yeah, I, I think that he's a great thinker, but when it comes to, when it comes to the Kalam argument, I think he made two very um, stupid mistakes in my view. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, the second mistake, uh, I mean, Aquinas was trying to respond to Bonaventura, right? right. Uh, but Bonaventura was the one who tried to defend the Kalam and tried to show that you know there must be a first cause of time, of a beginning, right? Aquinas was responding to Bonaventura, but in his response, I think Aquinas made a number of stupid mistakes. So I already explained one, and the second stupid mistake that he made was he didn't distinguish carefully between a potential infinite and an actual infinite. Right. So right. and this concerns the Christmas present argument which I made earlier on, right? So which is another argument, right, to show that there must be a first course of time, right? So now Aquinas, interestingly, Aquinas agree that an actual infinite is impossible, right? Aquinas thought that actual infinite is impossible. So he would have thought that an infinite past is impossible, right? But no, because he, he thought that the past could be like a potential infinite. Right. Now you can keep thinking about the past, you know that, uh, okay, I came from my parents uh, earlier on, and earlier on could I come from another earlier period. So he, he, he thought, he, he kind of think of the past like a future, right? Where you know, I, I can, you know, I, it could be one more year, two more year into the future, and therefore there could be one more year, two more year into the past, right? So he, he thought of the, the past like a kind of potential infinite, right? But that is fallacious because the past cannot be in a, a potential infinite. Why? Because mm. I, I like the future, right? The future can be a potential infinite because the number of events in the future, they are still increasing, right? Because according to the because according to the A theory of time, the number of events in the future, the number of the, the events in the future, they are not yet, right? Uh, the the future, future events are not yet and therefore they can continue to increase. Right? Whereas the number of earlier events have already happened. Right. right. And so, for example, the, the number of events that is earlier uh, than the, before the formation of the sun, right? the number of events that led to the formation of the sun, that number of events is a, is a determinate whole. Right? It is no longer increasing. Right? So the, the, the past cannot be a potential infinite. Right? Right. And so the past must either be actually finite or actually infinite. Right? Mm -hmm. But it cannot be actually infinite right? because of the uh, Hibbert Hotel argument, right? the Christmas yeah. uh, Argument. And also because Aquinas himself agree right, that actually infinite cannot agree, uh, cannot exist, yeah, and therefore there must be, be a first event in time. Yeah, must no, be that's a, a that's a great point. Uh, yeah, the past can't possibly be a possible infinite. Again, no pun intended. I don't know why I keep doing yeah, that. Cannot, yeah. yeah, the past can't be a potential infinite because it it doesn't even have the potential to exist again, uh, let alone grow. Um, the future can be a a, a past uh, past infinite. I mean, I'm sorry, the future, the future can be a potential infinite uh, because yes. it actually has the potential to exist. It hasn't began to exist yet. Uh, so yep. that would be one, one good reason. Um, and, and, I, and to be fair, uh, I do think that your critique of Thomas or of Aquinas is, is, is a good one. I think it probably does succeed. And, but, um, and I don't know if you've made up your mind on the Thomistic argument yet or not, on the, the uh, Thomistic cosmological argument yet or not, but... I think that um, I've had this critique of uh, Aquinas for a while being his critique of the Kalam. I've, I've, I'm more in line with what you're saying or with what Dr. Craig would say. Um, but I still think that Aquinas' cosmological argument does succeed. I think, I think you can hold bo both. I think you can have this cr critique of Aquinas when it comes to the Kalam and still think that his cosmological argument exists. I think they both work. Um, his, his argument from dependency, I think, works, and then this argument... 
uh, also works, I think. Um, but anyway, that'd be a whole nother discussion. I, we've been talking for quite a while now. Uh, I kind of want to get to see if we have any comments. I haven't opened them up yet. Uh, maybe we have zero, but I'm going to go take a look at those, see what we got going on in the comment section. Um, I see that we do have some viewers live with us. So if you do have a question that you want uh, answered from uh, Dr. Loke, now's the time to ask. If you haven't already, I'm going to go take a look at those. Um, and while I go take a look at those, Dr. Loke, I got one last question for you. Uh, which is what what all can we know about this first cause? What can we know about the nature of the first cause? What can we deduce about the the nature of the first cause? Okay, so as I explained earlier on, right, the first cause must be uncaused, right, because it is the first, right, and secondly, the first cause must have must be without beginning as well, right, uh, because everything that begins to exist will require a cause, right. So the first cause. Must beginning that a lot of people have right so a lot of people have asked this question right if you say everything comes from god where did god come from right uh, now uh now suppose god is the first cause right now the first cause didn't come from anywhere right because the first cause is without beginning right only things that begin to exist would require a cause right because something cannot come from nothing right and also because of the modest tolerance arguments which i presented early on right uh, however, if something has no, so, so those, that modus tollus argument, which I presented early on, shows that uh, if something has a beginning, it will have a cause. However, if something is without beginning, if something has no beginning, then what this implies that it has, is that it has always existed. Right? Having no beginning means that it has always existed. And something that always existed doesn't require a cause because it has always been there. Right? And therefore, it wasn't brought into existence. Right? Rather, it has always been there. Right? And therefore, um, the first cause, right, doesn't require a cause, right, because it has always existed. Right. And moreover, I explained just now that the first cause must also be initially changeless, uh, because an uh, infinite regress of change is not possible, and the first change must have been caused right, by uh, the first cause, which must have been initially changeless. And I also explained early on that the first cause must have liberated freedom. Uh, and the first cause must be immaterial as well, right, because it is initially changeless, right, whereas material things are in, are in constant change. And the first cause must be tremendously powerful. It must be enormously powerful. And the, the power of the first cause is can be deduced from the effect. Right? The, the universe is so tremendous. Right? The universe is so huge. The universe has billions and billions of galaxies. Right? And, and galaxies, each galaxy has billions and billions of stars. Right? So the huge um, uh, universe, where did that come from? Right? That universe came from this first cause. And so this first cause must have tremendous power right, to, br to bring about uh, this enormous, awesome universe, right, which we see, and um, and so um, we have a first cause, right? That is uncaused, without beginning, uh, initially changeless, immaterial, has libertarian freedom and enormous power, right? So that is the creator of the universe, and there we have it, right? And yeah. let me add yeah. one point, um, which is that is that now uh, this cosmological argument. Uh, is not based on ignorance. It is not a God of the gaps argument. And this is an important point because a lot of people think that people believe in God because of gaps in their knowledge. A lot of people think that, um, a lot of people have this misunderstanding, right? A lot of people uh, thought that, they think that you know, um, the reason why people believe in God is because you know, they don't know how to explain how the universe began and therefore they think that it's God, right? It's just like many people in the past, right? They don't know how to explain thunder and lightning. Therefore, they think that oh, there's a thunder god, right, causing the lightning. Uh, but once we know more about science, right, 
we don't need to believe in the Thunder God anymore, right? Right. So science replaces God right, in their view, right? Uh, however, um, the cosmological arguments is not based on ignorance. It's not based on gaps in our knowledge. Right? Now, um, you, you have to listen carefully. When I present a cosmological argument, I did not say, right, because I don't know how to explain the universe, therefore I say it's God. No, I, I didn't say that. That's not what I said, right? Rather, the cosmological argument is based on reasons. Right? I demonstrated that you know, because we know that infinite regress is not possible, therefore there must be a first cause. Because we know that something cannot begin to exist uncaused, right. because, and therefore there must, this first cause must be without beginning. So every step of the cosmological argument is based on reasons, right? And it's not based on ignorance, right? And therefore the conclusion is also based on reason, it's not based on ignorance. Right? And this conclusion can never be replaced by science. Why? Because when science discovers something, right, um, we can always ask where did that something come from, right? So, for example, if science, so for example, science is able to explain thunder and lightning, right, using natural laws, right? Now we can ask where did that, where did that natural law come from, right? Now, if you said that natural law come from something else, where did that something else come from, right? So, given that you know, infinite regress is not possible, you know, that, that all these the natural laws must have come from a first cause, which is a creator, as I demonstrated, right? So science can never replace this creator. Science can never refute the conclusion of the Kalam argument. Rather, science itself requires the first cause in order to ex explain why did the natural laws exist in the first place. Right? And so science can never replace the creator. Rather, the science, rather, scientific discoveries will help us discover more and more of these natural laws which the creator has created. And so instead of science leading us away from believing God, you know, science the, you know, actually lead us right, to recognize the wonders of God, the amazing power and intelligence of God you know, to bring about all these natural laws. And so uh, science should lead us into a deeper worship of God mm. yeah. to see the glory of God that is revealed in creation. Very good. Okay, we're going to get to a couple of questions that we got uh, from the audience in the YouTube uh, live chat section there. Uh, before we do, I want to uh, say thank you to our patron supporters because of uh, your giving is uh, why I get to make uh, free videos like this and put them out there on the interwebs. And, uh, of course, uh, if you want to be a patron supporter, and you should because uh, whenever you become a patron supporter, uh, you get access to the bonus segment of my interviews, which will include the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with Dr. Andrew Loke, uh, here briefly, that will only be accessible to patrons over at our Patreon uh, page, which there's a link in the description. Uh, it's also patreon.com forward slash help me believe where you can get access to that and become a patron supporter. Um, Anyway, again, thanks so much to our patron supporters. A couple of questions for you from the audience real quick, uh, Dr. Loke. Uh, this one comes from Theo Kapoor, and uh, the question is, have you looked at Sean Carroll's objections to the Kalam? Oh, yes. Uh, in my book, I responded to his objections. Uh, and uh, so one of his objections is that uh, Sean Carroll, uh, he thought that uh, the causal principle may not hold right? he, he, uh, at, at, the, at the beginning, right? I mean, he, he claims that uh, modern uh, science, in, especially in fundamental physics, right, they have no use for the idea of causality. He thinks that the idea of cause is not present in fundamental physics. But actually, that is false, because if you look into fundamental physics, um, contemporary fundamental physics, you see that the idea of 
interaction, for example, is still present, right? So we talk about the forces interact with each other, right? And interaction is a causal concept, right? Things interact, right? Means that they causally affect each other, right? So uh, you still find the idea of causation in even in fundamental physics, right? So his his I you know, so what he said is actually false. And moreover, I have already given a modus tollens argument right, to show why is it the case that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Right? And Sean Carroll, no, he he, uh, he didn't give a good rebuttal right, to this modus tollens argument, which I explain in my book. Uh, and so to find out more, you can check out my book where I respond to his arguments and demonstrate why the causal premise, the causal principle that whatever begins to exist has a cause, why this principle is true. So that would be my response to to Carol. Now I have other response which I know I have no time to explain, but um, yeah. So yeah, sure. so this. Mm -hmm. Okay. The next question is uh, from Vincent Irmedi. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sure I'm not. Um, let's see if I can bring it up here. There it is. It says. Uh, whoop. Okay. One second. I'm learning how to do this. Trying to bring the question up so that people can see it. Um, okay, it says, I understand the concrete abstract distinction, but while thoughts are abstract, conceiving of a concrete infinite seems to produce the same absurdities as a concrete infinite. In that case, what would you make then of God's tenselessly seeing an actual infinite number of future events through his omniscience? So given the arguments against the actual infinite, uh, I'm trying to reword the question. It's kind of a long question. I think it's basically uh, given the arguments you have against an actual infinite or God's thoughts about the future, not an actual infinite or something, or his omniscience, not an actual infinite or something like that. Okay, now that's a great question and it will take a long time right, to, for me to give a very detailed answer. Uh, but let me just answer very briefly and for, for more details, you can check out my chapter two of my book where I explain the distinction between a concrete actual infinite and an abstract actual infinite. Right? Um, so in my view, uh, so I differ from Craig on this point actually. Right? So Craig thinks that actual infinite is not possible. Um, whereas for me, I, I think that um, Actual infinite is possible if we are talking about abstract realm, right? So I think that abstract actual infinite is possible, but concrete actual infinite is not possible. Right? So I mean, I make a distinction between abstract and concrete actual infinite. And the key difference between a concrete actual infinite and an abstract actual infinite is that concrete entities have causal powers, right? By definition, right? By definition, when we talk about concrete things, we are talking about things that has causal powers. And if you think carefully about the argument, the Christmas present scenario, which I presented early on, you can see that the, the main issue there is that the, the, the violate metaphysical necessary truths about causation, about causality, right? When you grab things in a certain way, you, know, you can actually cause an infinite number of presents, right? You can actually uh, uh, bring, even though it's not supposed to happen, right? So it actually violates uh, causation, where we talk, and that's the problem, right, with a concrete actual infinite. Whereas, if you're talking about abstract infinities, right, yeah, you can imagine all kinds of things, uh, um, but you no, know, that has no causal powers. That doesn't actually bring about anything. Uh, um, and, and so, um, you know, that, that doesn't, that, that is not a problem, right? And, and therefore, I want to clarify that my argument only applies against 
concrete actual infinite. It doesn't apply against abstract actual infinite. And so mathematicians can continue. So and so mathematicians can continue to think about abstract infinities. You know, that's no problem. In fact, that's what David Hubert himself said, right? The, the, the originator of Hubert Hotel, David Hubert, he says that the actual infinite is solely an idea. It doesn't exist in the concrete. It's solely an idea. So you can have ideas about it. No, that's not a problem, right? But it cannot exist in concrete. So likewise for God, right? We can say that you no know, God can have abstract ideas. You know, God can think about abstract ideas, right? About the future, whatever. There can be an infinite number of them that talk, that God thinks about, you know, but, uh, but these abstract ideas, Cannot exist in the concrete. There cannot be a, a con. It cannot all exist together you know, uh, right. in in the concrete world as an as yeah. an actual concrete infinite. That that cannot happen. Yeah, very good. Well, that's all the time we have for the questions. Uh, There's really all the questions we had. Uh, Dr. Loke, thanks so much for joining me again to the audience. If you want to watch the bonus segment, just follow the Patreon link in the description below. Uh, if you enjoyed this, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, turn on the little notifications there on YouTube, leave us a review if you're listening to the podcast. Uh, really appreciate it, uh, Dr. Loke. Thank you so much. Uh, again, I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. God bless.